Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of these, your faithful, who have gathered here out of love for you. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, I had the opportunity to be a teacher at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. I was a lecturer, and that meant that I was not eligible for um, for becoming a tenured faculty, but I was teaching some important classes that they needed some people to teach um, because of their increasing enrollment. I had an office in the Harrington building, and um, I remember coming to my office one day, and there at the door of my office was a beautiful single rose in a vase. This wasn't any regular rose. It was a, a beautiful, what they call sterling silver lavender rose. I had never seen anything like it, and it took my breath away. And when I reached for the card and opened it, it said, from a secret admirer. This was so important to me. I was going through a deeply lonely time in my life. I was trying to figure out who I was. I was uh, dating and trying to make dates work into something bigger, but it never happened. I felt like I was unlovable, that nobody wanted me. Nobody wanted to be with me. I thought I had some secret admirer, and I was so excited. I started trying to figure out who it was. And I remember telling my parents, I'm so excited. I got this beautiful rose from somebody who says they're a secret admirer. Later that day when I got home, my dad, who we eventually called Papa Hut, but my dad came home to my home, and hanging his head, he said to me, That rose you got today was from me. I am your secret admirer. I was devastated. I was angry. I felt like I had been fooled and embarrassed. It would take a while for me to get over that I was still alone and lonely, that I couldn't see clearly how important my dad's love was for me, how important my God's love was for me. Slowly, however, I finally got there. And that's why I love this story and about the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop. And that's why in large part, I'm a a Christian because I believe, I believe that God transforms us. I know God has made a difference in transforming me and still transforming me. I think this story carries within it an amazing picture of God's great and gracious love, not just for Jesus, 
but for you and me and for all God's people and for all creation. For Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, the transfiguration story is in many ways the mother of all epiphany stories. Of course it is. I mean, you know, it's on a mountaintop and Jesus' clothes turn whiter than any bleach can make them and his face shines. I mean, that's the inbreaking of God, no doubt about it, right? It reveals Jesus as being a prophet and most especially a beloved child of God. The episode, interestingly, takes place almost right in the center of the Gospel of Mark. The eight chapters prior to it, much of which we have been talking about during the Epiphany season, the eight chapters prior to this moment were all about Jesus' ministry, all about his, um, his healing work and his liberation work that he was doing. The remaining eight chapters that follow will be the story of his passion, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. This story, this epiphany, this showing forth, not only takes place in the center of this gospel, but it takes place in the highest geographical region near Caesarea Philippi. It is what most scholars believe is, the, is Mount Hermon, the highest peak in Syro-Palestine. And it stands, this story, not just at the center of the gospel, but, and not just at the high point of the gospel, but it stands as the pivot story the pivot point between the two great movements of Jesus' life and ministry. In the verses just before the passage we heard read just now, um, Jesus speaks what is arguably the most disturbing and difficult of all his teachings. That he must suffer, die, and rise again, and that anyone who wishes to follow him must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. The disciples are understandably bewildered by these ideas. The transfiguration's light, then, acts for them as a kind of reassurance a reassurance of Peter, James, and John, as if the writer of Mark is saying, we're now making a turn to the cross, and it's going to be bad. It means descending into the valley of the shadow of death. But even so, you hold on to this astonishing moment, this mysterious mountaintop story, as you go. Now, if you're wondering about the appearances of Moses and Elijah, let's first consider that Moses was the giver of the law, considered the giver of the law to the Jewish people, and Elijah was a significant prophet, which for Jews would put Jesus in the lineage of both, the law and the prophets, which Jesus said he did not come to get rid of, 
in fact, he came to be a part of. So let's also consider some elements of the story that might be confusing for us. The story begins with six days later. This is common in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark often is telling us how many days have passed. Is it morning? Is it evening? What is happening? And it is likely an illusion these six days. There is the story of Moses going up on the mountain with some of his followers and some of the elders that were traveling with him. And he remains on the mountain for six days without hearing from God. He's been invited up to the mountain by God, but waits for six days. And then a cloud descends over the mountain. And God calls out to Moses to come with him. And that is when he receives the commandments. And when he comes down from the mountain, there is a shining radiance of his garments. And at the same time, it anticipates what is going to happen later in this gospel with the shining raiment of the robe at the empty tomb that the angel is wearing. Now, by Mark's day, many Jews considered Elijah to be an eschatological, that's a 25-cent theological word, that means an unveiling, a, a story, a, a prophet who was an unveiling showed the Jews what God was like, a figure who would signal the imminent end of the age. The fascination with Elijah was no doubt partly due to the story in Second Kings of his being swirled up directly into heaven at the end of his life, avoiding the sting of death itself, a turn of events taken as a vivid sign of his holiness and devotion. So these two figures, secure for the writer of the Gospel of Mark and for the Jewish listeners, that Jesus is legit. Finally, the story's cloud and divine voice evoke the portrait of God's presence in Exodus of that story I just mentioned of Moses being called forth onto the mountaintop where he waits and the cloud covers the mountain and the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. In this way, the writer casts this mountaintop encounter with God within a broad sweep of salvation history. Of course, the challenge for us today is that we don't know all these allusions to the Hebrew scriptures. That's why I shared them with you. Maybe by hearing these allusions, we begin to get a feeling about what the writer of Mark was trying to do. What we hear instead is an odd story about Jesus and his disciples experiencing a mystical encounter of God that is transformative. What happens up there is beyond explanation. But at its heart is a vision of that mysterious heavenly realm on earth and in heaven of the world to come. Now, as hard as it for us to understand, in this story, time and space seem to collapse. The world somehow becomes incandescent. So is it any wonder that Peter, never at a loss for words, 
offers what seems to be a silly idea of building booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. Actually, perhaps he was thinking of the Greek custom of building shrines at the site of God's appearance. Or he is trying to corral this frightening, astounding, mystical story into something more controlled, captured. I think he may just simply be terrified, grasping at something to say, something to offer. Consider your own spiritual journey here. Might we respond to God in this way? At a mystical encounter that we just count as serendipitous? Oh, that just happened. Would we respond to God in this way? Let me control this. Would we respond to God in this way of wanting just something to say, something to offer? And what of that disturbing, difficult teaching of Jesus that he must suffer, die, and rise again, and that anyone who wishes to follow him must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow? I mean, how do you square that? How do you square that teaching with our own lives today? What does it mean for you and me to deny ourselves? To take up our cross? What does that mean? How do we respond to that in this day and time when truth seems a flight of fancy? How do you and I make a commitment, not just for now, but for what might come, about how we will treat people, how we will love people, how we will care for people, and what will we have to deny in order to follow this Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, who loved broadly and deeply? The transfiguration ends as abruptly as it began. The two figures suddenly vanish, and the disciples find themselves alone with Jesus. The message here isn't that Jesus somehow eclipses or supersedes Moses and Elijah, but rather that Jesus stands in profound kinship and continuity with them, both carrying on and culminating their work. And it seems to me that the story is intent on envisioning Jesus as one stepping forward as God's beloved. Do you hear that? One stepping forward as God's beloved, the one to whom his disciples must listen. Jesus is one stepping forward. That language might mean something to us when push comes to shove in our own individual worlds in the world of our church that if we follow Jesus we're going to be as Jesus one stepping forward as God's beloved of course on the descent from the mountain Jesus instructs the disciples not to say a word about what they've witnessed so much has been made of what scholars call the gospel of Mark's messianic secret but perhaps Jesus' instruction is as simple as Jesus knowing that no one, no one they told the story to, 
would ever understand it, much less believe it. And they would not be able to do justice to what they experienced, which was a mystery, a mystery of the presence of God. And maybe this is the central point of this transfiguration story. The suffering and death of Jesus may at first appear unthinkable, must certainly appear as defeat, but it is actually a step toward dramatic, subversive victory. Is it possible that the truth of that story is our story too? Think if you will. Think if you will about the great leaders of the civil rights movement. They stepped forward as God's beloved. They did the hard work of non-violence, violent confrontation. They showed us a way that was so much like Jesus' way. And when you and I, when we venture into the shadows of death as Jesus did then, and as Jesus will do now, Jesus will scatter those shadows once and for all, overcoming them in the end with inbreaking light. It's always there. Do you get it? The inbreaking light of God is always there. And when we seek Jesus, when we seek to encounter Jesus through meditation and contemplation and prayer and study, through, through community, we too can encounter that inbreaking light. So we can take heart and do what the voice of God said. Listen to this one. Let us continue to trust and walk with Jesus, following in his footsteps and taking up his mantle, his cross, so that we too may hear the words of God, that we are children, that we are beloved. And then as God's beloved, step out in faith. As I told you earlier, Epiphany concludes today. Jesus has shown forth to be a healer and a liberator, a teacher and a shining prophet. Jesus' path of love will lead down into the valley through the dry cinders of Ash Wednesday and the tears of Good Friday. But today, we're atop Mount Hermon and we can survey the 40 days ahead and take a deep breath and remember that the journey through ashes and sorrow is never for its own sake. It's for the sake of what will come. In a word, it is for the sake of transfiguration. In a word, it's for the sake of transformation, a radiant new life, and an inbreaking of God into a new world. So let me ask you, how appropriate is it that on this Transfiguration Sunday, we are also celebrating St. Valentine's Day, and I always put the saint before it. Because I think that's what we need to remember. Why do I think this is special, special conflagration of, of events this year, in the year of our Lord, 2021? 
is because the transfiguration story is a story of God's great and gracious and unconditional and everlasting love for Jesus and no less us. So I invite you on this Valentine's Day to contemplate this great and gracious love of God shown to us in this transfiguration story. And think of all the love in your life. The love you feel and the love you witness. The love you remember and the love you long for. It took a long time for me to move past my anger at Papa Hutt for sending me a sterling silver lavender rose and claiming me and that he secretly admired me. But his love and the love that he showed me and the love of God he showed me has truly changed my life forever. If you and I have ears to see, have eyes to see and ears to hear, that truth about God's love is that it's all around us. It is the inbreaking light that is the love of God for you and for me and for all the people and for all of creation. And on this Transfiguration Sunday and on this St. Valentine's Day, let us engage this mystery and simply dwell in it. The mystery of Jesus' transfiguration and what it meant to him and for our world everlasting. And the mystery of God's love and the mystery of the inbreaking light and the transforming life and light of Jesus. And on this annual celebration of romantic love that we have made it into, let us remember that the story of God's love is for everyone, and especially for those who are lost, lonely, least, and last. Hear the promise of God. You too are lovable. You too are loved. You are everything. Amen.